0: I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hello, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show we have retired Lieutenant Colonel Stéphane Grenier. Uh, he's retired from the Canadian Forces and now he's a mental health innovator, uh, a, a a powerful advocate uh, for awareness and recovery from PTSD uh, and operational stress injury, a term that he largely coined. Having him on the show today because it is Remembrance Day in Canada, Veterans Day in the United States, a time when we can remember the, the contributions of uh, of our troops here in Canada, domestically and around the world. He was a perfect guest, Stefan, to have these kinds of conversations of the intersection of mental health, not only with uh, wars abroad, but in your own own mind in your own head and how he was able to navigate that himself so you know we get into that and if you have a if you have a history of PTSD of trauma uh, you know you might want to be mindful of that coming into this episode we don't get into the necessarily the nitty-gritty of everything that ever traumatized uh, Stefan Grenier. but you know if you're still sensitive to that kind of conversation especially if you have a combat history then uh, I would flag that for you right here in advance and I don't always do that but um, so here's here's my conversation with Stefan it was such an honor for me uh, to speak with somebody who's been such a powerful force uh, in this field for so long and such uh, an engaging person. His book is out now uh, called After the War, uh, Surviving PTSD and Changing the Mental Health Culture. We recorded at the Marriott Ottawa, uh, and I'd like to thank them for their support in in bringing us together. Here's my conversation with Stéphane Grenier on So-Called Normal.
1: So I uh, I retired from the military after 29. People ask me why 29. Well, it was 29. <laughs> a lot of people say you should do your 30 years uh, in the military service, right? right. Uh, Is there any
0: benefit to getting to the 30 year mark? It's just apparently, but oh, really? uh, yeah, but
1: I never looked into it. Yeah. I'm not financially motivated in that way. So I, when it was time to go, I I left, right? Mm-hmm. And that was on the heels of a two year secondment with the Mental Health Commission of Canada, working on a national initiative to create a national standard for peer support. Mm. And so what that did to me is it made me realize that while we in our workplace, my former workplace, the military, sometimes it can get pretty rough sure. from a mental health perspective. My two years with the commission made me realize that everyday Canadians are up for a, a harder fight right. than we are in the military. And I can say that because I mm. did spend almost three decades in the military. Um, and it made me realize that I wanted to serve my country in a different way, mm. uh, create uh, a country that, 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 that understands uh, that, and that doesn't only talk about mental health, but has put in place the practices and the supports that people need in order to recover because... You have children, I have children, Mm -hmm. I have grandchildren. And the legacy I want to live uh, when I I leave uh, is uh, a better mental health system, Mm -hmm. not only uh, for the healthcare system, but for workplaces.
0: Yeah, so we're gonna be releasing this episode on Remembrance Day Mm. uh, as a special for Remembrance Day. Can you talk to me more about your military service, your mm. career? That that tw- three decades, twenty nine years. Sure. Yeah. Uh, what attracted you to uh,
1: to joining the military in the first place? That's too long ago. I really don't. I don't. I don't. I honestly don't remember. Um, you know, people will say token things. Such as, the sense of adventure. I wanted to travel. Mm. I wanted to serve my country. You know, I was young. I was fit. I want to do something exciting and that probably is what drew me to the military. Did
0: you come from a military family?
1: Not at all. French-Canadian family from uh, north of Montreal, was born in La Chute, Quebec. Very Mm. liberal conscription, (laughs) you know, uh, circumscription. But no, not at all. Um, So how did your parents then and your family respond to, well, how old were you actually? I was right out of high school. I went to military college. Funny story is I didn't last very long. Oh, no? I I fell asleep during the Christmas exams. Oh, jeez. Yeah, (laughs) a a calculus exam. And I woke up uh, an hour and a half later with a big puddle of drool on my exam. And that was the end of my military college education. (laughs) And at the time, though, you didn't need a university degree to become an officer. I think some people had recognized that this guy's got leadership skills. He, he's a bit sleepy, but he has leadership <laughs> skills. So I became an officer through the other uh, stream okay. uh, and uh, became an armored officer uh, in armored corps and tanks, mini mm-hmm. tanks. We do have tanks in Canada. Yes. And um, my, my career uh, over the next three decades was, was divided in, in three chunks, right? There was a Cold War decade which was essentially the Cold War. I was in a a combat arms unit. You know, this is a typical army unit. Mm -hmm. uh, Deployed overseas. I went to Germany. I went to Norway in a big NATO exercise where Mm. we were preparing against a Russian invasion of the northern flank of Europe, (laughs) which was Norway and Sweden. And, you know, did all those Cold War things. The second decade of my career, um, the Cold War ended. um, And I ended up deploying all over the world. Mm. Uh, For about 10 years, I went all over the world. During that time was one tour of duty was in in Rwanda that essentially broke me uh, psychologically uh, when I came back. And as I started recovering, it took me six to eight years with young children trying to figure this out. And Mm. as I was recovering, I was obsessed with getting better, but also understanding what was wrong with my workplace. Mm. Why is it that we treat people like this, right? Mm -hmm. And so that allowed me to come up with an idea that I pitched to a three-star general who liked the idea. And I spent the last decade of my career um, in what I call the non-clinical mental health space, Mm -hmm. uh, developing programs, influencing policy change, in uh, this sort of back-end work, but also delivering frontline services mm-hmm. to people, uh, military folks our employees, to retired veterans, to families and later bereaved families. So these are the families that get you know, the unfortunate call, your mm-hmm. husband or your spouse or your son has died in mm-hmm. the service of their country, and created those support systems all as a complement to the clinical care, right? Because I felt that we emphasize so much uh, the clinical pathway, which I believe in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a treatment-compliant individual. Uh, I'm not against psychiatry, psychology. If you go to our corporate website, you'll see, Mark, we work with you know the, the clinicians. But there's, there's a long time between medical appointments, and I felt that we as a society, as workplaces, as leaders, mm-hmm. we must not forget that the people that live with us, that work with us, that, that are in our neighbourhoods, spend a lot more time between medical appointments than, than mm-hmm. not. And therefore, that's the gap that I wanted right. to fill. So I was honored with, with the the task of, of getting involved. Did that, seconded to the commission, and then I realized that my workplace had it pretty easy. Hmm. I realized that we in the military, we don't have it easy, but because often our conditions will be associated with something that was in the news or a deployment. Everybody's heard about Romeo Dallaire and Rwanda, right? right? And so it ends up being perhaps more acceptable that people like myself will be unwell. Sure. It's understandable given
0: what you've seen kind of thing. Exactly.
1: But it's not acceptable for Joe Q Public, who is a graphic designer Mm. to have depression. And I say, wrong. You do not have to go to war or be shot at to develop a mental health problem. Right. And I know I can say that. And therefore, my goal now is to really impact society. Yeah. Could you have said that,
0: you know, or when did you come back from Rwanda? That was 90, 95. 95. Yeah. Uh, and I, I heard you speak once before, and I hadn't previously realized uh, that that you were there with Romeo and Dallaire, mm-hmm. General Dallaire. Uh, that you reported to him. Uh, yeah. What rank had you reached by that point? I was a captain. You were a captain. Pretty yeah, low-end
1: yeah. uh, officer at the at the right. time. Yeah. yeah,
0: so can yeah. you tell me, as far as you're comfortable anyway, I don't want to, uh, I, I've heard you speak about this before, but I also don't want to re-traumatize you by any means, no, no, but can you yeah. tell me about Rwanda, the, the genocide? in your-
1: Yeah, Rwanda was, uh, you know, I mean we, um, I was at National Defense Headquarters when the crisis broke. Hmm and I was participating in daily morning meetings at seven o'clock in the morning where the deputy chief of defense staff was being briefed on all the international operations. Uh, you know, and so I was, I was in the crowd there every morning and I was in one of the back rows and the three-star generals in the front. And uh, I always remember this. So the, the crisis had broken of course, we had a lot of troops in Bosnia at the time, and Bosnia was the big thing. Yeah. Um, Rwanda was this thing, but, you know, we would hear about Rwanda every once in a while, but it wasn't the main focus of mm-hmm. Canadian operations overseas because it wasn't a big mission. Mm-hmm. But when the war broke out and the genocide started, it became a topic of morning conversations. Of course, we're Googling Rwanda more and figuring out, oh, my God, seeing it on the news every night. Sure. And I'll always remember this. On a Wednesday morning, I'm sitting in the third row. And uh, the deputy chief of defense staff at the time turns around. And he says, Grenier, where are you? I said, here, sir. And I'm a captain. And he knew I was a francophone. Mm-hmm. He says, get ready. Friday, you're leaving. You're going to help Romeo in, uh, in, uh, in Rwanda. And I said, Friday? Holy shit, It's two days from now. <laughs> and the reason I was able to deploy so fast is because I had been immunized. And I was already taking mefloquine because I was on the international standby list to go to mm-hmm. Haiti. Okay. So um, Friday morning, I was in Trenton, got on a plane. And uh, thirty six hours later, landing in Rwanda on a on a tactical mm. airlift flight.
0: So before you um, before you left, before yeah. you got that call, had you any prior um, experience with mental health problems or illness Zero, or trauma? Or, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Mental health. Uh, I don't. I don't think that was even. I mean, I knew the words mental health. Right. Probably because, but, but no. Right. It, so did and even do, in our culture, in the military culture, there was no
0: right, and that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, so no did, zero understanding. They, did they do any kind of training? Zero or, or nothing. Nothing. nothing.
1: Yeah. Now, as soldiers, we're we're on a yearly basis. Mm-hmm. It, it's just like a street cop, right? I mean, police officers go through annual refresher training on all the skills that you need to be right. able to be an effective police officer. Now. Rwanda was a bad example, perhaps, because it was a mission that just exploded mm-hmm. uh, with requirements and needs. And uh, my deployment was not; it was atypical, right. right? However, being on the international standby list, ready, immunized, and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. right? As far as um, you know, cultural awareness, I got, I think, a half an hour briefing right. in Nairobi, Kenya, in a hotel room. Right. You know, snakes. You know, uh, water purification, and boom, right? But mm-hmm. all the rest, so I felt I felt prepared. Yeah. I felt prepared to go into an operational theater um, because that's what we do, right? Mm. The m- mental preparation, zero though right Mm. i'd seen what was going on on tv but that's about it so then when well what was it like you get there and and what's
0: your immediate um response to that are you still in soldier mode or did it start to affect you what you saw there right away
1: no so it's interesting um it 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 never really affected me over there so Mm. so i deployed there and then uh, came back to pack my equipment to stay a full six months, and my six months ended up being nine months, right? Mm-hmm. So, I deployed during the war, spent some time there, uh, came back to Canada to redeploy right back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, for the, I forget, a couple of weeks I was there during the genocide, you know, it was certainly busy and all this, but I can say that it's a you know you you've heard I don't know if you're a runner but you know mm-hmm. people who do marathons will know this you know you train for a marathon when you're running the marathon unless you you, you sprain an ankle mm. you're not in pain you're right. good right afterwards yeah. when you cool down right so I think that's what happened to me is when mm. I cooled down afterwards is when everything hit me why because I think there's a job to do mm. you're busy. There's 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 a mission. <laughs> there are people dying. There there there's there's a cause, mm-hmm. and therefore you're focused, right? It's the aftermath that yeah. was really tough. And which, you
0: said that it broke you
1: uh, in the for aftermath. For sure, absolutely. Which is why you know, and I'll give you a copy of my book. Uh, it's called After the War. Yeah. So, of course, after the war means, oh, you were at war, so what happened there? So the book talks about right. the war, <laughs> sure. but really the book is called After the War because uh, that's
0: when it started hurting. Right. right. So, so what did that look like for you? How did things start to break down?
1: Well, you know, the, I do s- talk about this in the book. Um, so the journey home, of course, from, from Africa is, is long, right? Mm. It's, uh, it's a long flight, long series of flights. Um, it's a bit tiring, but um, two things hit me. Uh, within 24 hours. One is, uh, well, a couple of things, right? Um, so I get to the Ottawa airport uh, and I came back alone, right? I didn't come back with a unit. So mm. I, was, I was alone. I was on a civilian flight or Canada from London or something like mm. that. And I'm at the baggage belt and I'm always the guy that boards last and, you know, mm. I let people rushing, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm looking at all these people rushing to get home and I haven't been home in like months, right? Yeah. And, and I'm looking, and and looking back I Was getting riled up Thinking are you kidding me you're pushing me to get your luggage yet? But, you know, looking back, they don't know who I am. I'm wearing a pair of jeans and a T-shirt, right? right? And
0: at this point, you're still a captain or you're, you're a current uh, I'm a captain. You're right, I'm right. still right. a
1: captain. Okay. But, but it doesn't matter. I'm right. civilian sure. in civilian clothing. But sure. in my head, right. the thoughts are going through my head don't make any sense because, hey, why would they know? Why would that they, I, they, or why would they care for that matter? Exactly. Right? <laughs> so I let people, right? But yeah. that, you know, in hindsight, the way I was uh, uh, processing what was happening was abnormal. Hmm. Uh, you know, I was getting upset, right? Mm-hmm. But it didn't show. Second thing that happened to me is I hop in a cab, a $63 cab ride later. Uh, and I did not tell my, I forget if I had told my wife or not. But anyways, uh, it was a surprise because my, my redeployment had been delayed so many times I didn't want it. Mm-hmm. So I knocked on the door because I didn't have a key. Deployed for nine months, you don't bring your key, right? <laughs> you know, you're know you going to lose the key, right? <laughs> so this is something maybe you don't know. And, I, w- I wouldn't know that. Yeah, you leave your key at home, right? <laughs> so knock on my own home door and uh, it's about bedtime for David and Veru and their young kids. Uh, Vérou is probably, I forget, let's say three and David is five and, and they're in their pajamas. And I remember so clearly uh, collapsing in the entrance. I didn't collapse because I was tired. Mm. It was too overwhelming. Right. I literally fell to my knees. I was in the process of fainting, but falling to my knees, I think, you know, put some more blood in my head, I guess. Sure. And I, the kids were there, so I hugged the kids. I leaned on the wall and I choked up, right? Yeah. And my wife was happy, but she was wondering, oh, what's going on? And of course, it's tears of joy, right? Sure. But it wasn't just tears of joy, it was tears of the clash. Hmm. You know, it just doesn't make any sense to be here. And then the third thing that happened within that first 24 hours was um, the next day. There's equipment there, or and, and washing my boots, right? And I'm washing my boots, and the soil in Rwanda is is, is reddish, a mm-hmm. bit like PEI, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, it's not blood, but the fact that the soil is is red. Now we don't do that anymore, right? The, mm-hmm. the equipment is cleaned overseas, and all this. You don't bring mm-hmm. stuff back, but in in the day, that's what it was like. Yeah. And I'm washing my boots and the red soil is being washed into the drain of the driveway and my daughter is riding her tricycle there and it is so it's such a clash Mm. it doesn't make any sense to me of being here washing this and of course i don't want to there's no blood in the soil but because it's red it's a symbol that's been seared into my brain with all these bodies triggers the flashbacks yeah so uh, yeah so those are three things that occurred now did that mean I was unwell? Probably not. It would probably hit you. But, you know, it's, it's the long road to recovery after that took almost right. 10 years. Right? So
0: how long did it take you to actually get help to realize, oh, this isn't or, or maybe it's normal given the circumstance. But this is something that, uh, that I can't do alone that I need help to help to get out of.
1: So I would answer the question by a question, you know. I got help pretty quick, but I rejected the help immediately. Really? So getting help that actually worked yeah. took uh, six, seven years. So
0: why did you reject it the first time? Did somebody did somebody try to give you help that they saw that you were no, struggling? I,
1: I essentially, after a close call at almost taking my life, and mm-hmm. again, the details in the book, um, mm-hmm. I said, okay, this is something wrong here. You mm. know what the heck is happening to me? So I went to the hospital the next day. The Sir, you were, you were you were suicidal at the time, were you? Yeah, yeah. exactly. I almost yeah. wrapped my car around the pole going back into work one night, uh, deliberately, right? And mm-hmm. then I, I said, what the hell? And I swerved away, and but that scared me, sure. right? I said, what am I doing? I have two kids. I, I have a beautiful wife, uh, and so um, I went in to help the other uh, the, the next day, mm-hmm. but uh, rapidly. Said, I'm gonna be good, right? Mm. I'm gonna be good. Mm. Uh, it was the 90s. We right. didn't, you know, nobody knew about psychotropic medication, and so I basically, right. and and I think the the medical and it's it's also in the book. everything's in the book, yeah, of course. yeah, yeah. But you know, I changed the name of my doctor because I didn't want to be sued. But this doctor was 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 not very helpful. Right. He was talking about my dog and how's your dog and you know, when you have any debts? And I'm thinking, hey, doc, that's not what's keeping me awake. Right. right. There. What the hell are you talking about, my dog, right? So I don't know what was going on there. That didn't go well. And therefore, when I left a little brown bag of pills, the credibility that had been established between me and this healthcare professional, and by the way, I'm for healthcare professionals. I'm not sure. saying they're all bad, but it wasn't there. Therefore, I took the brown bag and just chucked it. Right? Sure, yeah. Okay, if you so don't okay, trust okay, him or believe him, it.
0: why would you trust his advice? Exactly,
1: right? right? And and that is not a unique experience of no. mine, right? No. So yeah.
0: Now, did you ever have any fear that asking for help or, or admitting that you might be struggling would affect your career? Because you're None still in really, the- really. It's
1: point. funny because everybody talks about that and i know the stats and i've looked at the research like the hoax study and the perceptions for me i don't think so um i've always been a very transparent guy i call it as it is Mm. i'm i have filters of course but i you know i i I don't shame easy uh do i have an ego of course but it's very hard to insult me really Mm. uh you know you make fun of me i'll laugh with you right so I'm not one of those people that would have been, you know, that stigma would have been this big barrier. And right. really, when you don't even know mental health problems exist, mm. how can you know stigma exists? Right. Because to, for us, there was no such thing. It was just like, well, why am I not sleeping? I woke up on the ground the other You know, I'm, I'm in sweats. Uh, I start crying in the middle of the day. What's going mm. on with me? You know, the words "mental health" are not in the narrative now, right, right? right? So it's a, it's a different era, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. But now we know what that was. Sure. Right? Yeah. In large part because of the work that you've
0: been doing as well, I think you've contributed so much to to yeah, evolving that conversation. Yeah, we're trying to change the narrative,
1: right. and yeah, exactly. So
0: how did? What does your? You said it took it took six or seven years. What did your treatment and recovery process look like through that time?
1: Well, before getting into that, you know, the work I do now was is is a, a byproduct of a couple of key events precipitating moments in my life the reason i i started to be perhaps treatment compliant or allowing myself to get better is because the culture around me one senior leader
0: mm.
1: who who led the culture in our organization gave me what i refer to as institutional permission to get better mm. He had a chat with me, a chit-chat, not a performance review, not an interview, not a meeting. He was a full colonel. I was a major, so two ranks below him. He was a nice man. I speak about him in my book, Chris Corrigan. And that man, in the span of 10 minutes, eradicated all of the barriers mm-hmm. that I had in front of me and gave me institutional permission, societal permission to get better. What did he say? Well, he basically said, you know, Stefan, you know, my, my recollection is words to the effect, you know, if you sum it up, Stefan, you know, I know you by reputation. You've been here for a year in a headquarters in Toronto, actually. You've been here for a year. I know your reputation because our, our, our files follow us, right? Mm, so sure. you know if the, the person you're working with is a top performer or low medium. right? Mm. So he Which is knew- also
0: something that doesn't happen in the rest of the No, world, it's right. right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah.
1: Colonel Chris Corrigan knew that I wasn't maybe an all-star NHL hockey player, but right. I wasn't you know an institutional loser either. I was sort of in the top tier of performers in, mm. in, in our organization. And he basically said, Stefan, I know you by reputation. I know, you know, but I don't think this is the guy that's working with me right now, right? Mm. He said, and, and he, he acknowledged a couple of things. He said, listen, I can appreciate that tour duty was really tough. Mm. You know, Romeo is, I'm sure, is, is, is struggling too. And, and he talked to me as a human, not mm. as a boss, right? Mm. Did he say what he uh, actually noticed, what had changed in you? Yes, before? Uh, and, and I don't want to make things up, so I don't remember, sure, but sure. the thing is, is that he connected he, he destroyed the power differential that right. existed yeah. between him and I. Right. And he allowed himself to be human. And he was talking to me as a human who cares. Mm. And that is what's missing, which is why we do the work we do now in my company. Mm-hmm. Because we're trying to rehumanize the workplace. Mm-hmm. And so that was a precipitating moment for me. And so once that occurred, I don't think... I was now dealing for my third time with necessarily a better doctor. Mm-hmm. It's just that I had that support, right. support from the people that I valued in my life that were important for me, and of course my 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 family supported me, my, my wife, but the, you know, we didn't talk about this a lot, but from a workplace perspective, which is the work I do now, that's what occurred. Mm-hmm. So I say. You can have all the best doctors and clinicians and the best medical plans on the planet until the culture around, within 15 feet of the person who's impacted in the workplace, until those people create the conditions for the human being struggling to get better, mm-hmm. you can throw as many doctors as you want. Right. It's likely not to work as well. Right. right? Right. So that was a huge precipitating moment for me. Yeah. So
0: then uh, you go on medication and therapy, and uh, what? Do, wh- how do you actually figure out how to crack the nut of PTSD? W- were you diagnosed with PTSD? Yeah,
1: I yeah. was, and uh, I actually end my book by saying, I don't think I have PTSD. And it's not because I'm challenging the diagnosis. It's because it's the only diagnosis that they know to give. right? Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot more complex than that, and the treatment uh, for what a lot of people have uh, needs to be adapted. Why? Because we, we still are in the evolution of understanding trauma, but we really don't understand trauma. We, right. so, which is why I created a, a term called operational stress injury. Right. To move the mindset away from trauma. So uh, an OSI, a stress injury, in, in my definition, and in, in our definition, is is has four main causes, right? Trauma is one of them. And we mm. get trauma. You've been mauled by a wolf. Rape is the single most important cause of trauma in, in, in Canada, right? Mm. Uh, uh, one, of, one of the most important ones. Uh, military, police, first response, trauma. So we over-endorse trauma. We, we over-understand trauma, and we really think that's the only condition that causes trauma. But I was i was i and 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 mark what i find happens is we we try to always dumb it down right mm. and so i now work with first responders with all sorts of uh, people and organizations and it's funny how there's no other words in people's narrative than trauma and i mm. often say well were you traumatized or were you upset right were were you um heavily impacted are there other words to describe you know, not that i'm treating people but sure. you know people get a, a bad performance review and a, a bad meeting with their boss and they say i was traumatized
0: mm-hmm.
1: well maybe you were upset mm-hmm. maybe you were disturbed maybe you weren't traumatized right right and so <clears throat> we, maybe we, it was a
0: normal reaction to an abnormal circumstance
1: <laughs> yeah i know uh, but and that also is contested right because right, sure the, but because the, most people don't have that reaction therefore sure. it's it's it is right but I think that trauma so what I say is I was yeah I went through days that I was upset I don't remember a single day where I was traumatized meaning ah mm. fight or flight you know and that whole thing. But I was morally conflicted every second day, Mm. heavily morally conflicted, which is why now there are clinicians and researchers like Brett Litz and Dr. Don Richardson doing research around moral injury Mm -hmm. because that's the next frontier, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So PTSD, I'm sure that's a a label I have with comorbid depression. Mm Uh, I don't reject it, but I say, you got it wrong, but guys. But don't identify Go with back it. to the yeah. books. Can you talk Maybe to
0: it? me more about the, um, and I think it was you, the the Road to Mental Readiness uh, mm-hmm. program and that um, visualization, I guess, of mental health from healthy through, mm. I believe it's injured, ill, I might be forgetting one in between. Mm-hmm. The Reacting. Yeah. Reacting, yeah. yeah. Can you the talk to spectrum. me a bit more about that spectrum?
1: Yeah, so at the time when I coined the term OSI, it was interesting because um the head of psychiatry for the US Marine Corps gave me a call and we chatted and he said, you know, uh, I like the term and we started collaborating, we worked together. So they were really good because the Navy Marine Corps and we were collaborating and this spectrum was developed, right? Um, uh, and the four causes of OSI and we started steering away from trauma. And uh, developing that spectrum, where from a workplace perspective again, you know, okay guys, we we get it. You know, when a person falls off a ladder and they break a leg, you, go, oh my God, they were healthy, Bam, they're not healthy anymore. Right. They need hair, yeah. Care. And mental health problems in the workplace don't normally occur in a flash in a moment where it's obvious, right? Mm-hmm. And so which is why that spectrum was built is to get people to be able to wrap their mind around that longitudinal process. Mm. And, and really, you know you can ebb and flow on that spectrum from from being healthy to reacting to, mm-hmm. to to being injured to being ill, not ill perhaps, but you can you can have that spectrum, um, you know, go from green to yellow to orange uh, in half a day, right. and by the time you're driving home at night, you get home. Hey, daddy, you're green again, right? right. And yeah. so, but as you decompensate slowly over your life course of life or whatnot. Of course, if, if you're never bouncing back and you're getting... Sure.
0: So what, but, ma- is it, what matters is not which stage you're in necessarily, unless you get way up to ill, but rather how stuck you are in, in one of those
1: stages. Yeah, I mean, and your inability perhaps to bounce back right. to that green zone is what we call right. it, right? And all of this work that we did at the time, and Suzanne Bailey carried on the work, and she needs to be acknowledged because she, she's kept this alive and R2MR is, is big now. Uh, first responders, I think, are gravitating towards it. Mm-hmm. It, it. It is to connect with the culture and provide mental health education that is culturally compatible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, with all due respect to clinicians, I do believe it is a it is a grave error to uh, subject employees and managers mm-hmm. to um, a, a psychiatrist providing. Uh, you know, charts of the brain and saying, this is the amygdala and this is, and, I mean, it's all factual. It's True. all very interesting, but it is so unhelpful, <laughs> right, to right. to the lay people in, in the workplace, whatever you, the workplace is. And I would even say for healthcare professionals, right. when you're a healthcare professional and you're you're somebody's colleague knowing how the amygdala is doesn't matter. Right. Well, and especially for for probably 20
0: years, we had social workers and psychologists talking about chemical imbalance, and then it turns out, oops, there's actually not a
1: lot of evidence to support that theory. So So the clinical stuff is is important for clinicians. As our workforce is concerned in Canada, Mm. they do not need to understand how the brain functions in order to be supportive to a colleague, because that's all they can do, really, is to be supportive and create the conditions I bumped into with Chris Corrigan back to Chris Corrigan, right? What he did was instrumental in my recovery, Mm -hmm. allowing me to say, okay, Jesus, I guess I have his support to get better. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't need his support, but it certainly was the catalyst for me. So where did peer support come in? I
0: mean, you've been a leader in the peer support movement in Canada. Uh, How did that come into play?
1: Well, my, um, my firm belief was that I serendipitously bumped into those little moments where I I I, I had the good fortune of having a three-minute conversation, mm-hmm. which happened to be supportive, which was not in the doctor's office, and I was able to self-reflect on the importance of that, and then looking beyond my own experience, <clears throat> checked checked around and thought, mm-hmm. oh wait a minute, this is not a new phenomenon. There's actually a name for this, right? Right. So. You know, while I do a lot of work in this field, I certainly did not create the concept, right? I want to make sure that concept pre-existed me. (laughs) Uh, But I think what I managed to do is create the perfect sweet spot Mm -hmm. for an institution as large as the Department of National Defense and now countless other large organizations Mm -hmm. to say, ah, there is a way to implement this service to complement everything else we do for our people, mm. and it is accountable. It is um, there's codes of conduct. There are standards. Uh, we know how to select the right people because not everybody mm.
0: should be a peer supporter. Mm, I'm what sorry, is, what, what, is, what peer. does that mean? Uh, you know, how do you how do you know who's a good peer supporter and maybe who's not?
1: Yeah. So. Um, well, you, you do not just say, hey, Bob, you're a nice guy. Why don't you be a peer supporter, right? So that's, that's wrong. Right, I mean, right. you may be right serendipitously, sure, right? right? However, institutions, all of our clients, I think, value the fact that when we implement programs on a, on a large scale for workplaces, uh, they value the fact that we can defend why we picked Mark right. and why we didn't pick Stefan as a peer supporter, right? right. Uh, why? Because you, you didn't. Uh, you demonstrate the behavioral indicators that support the competencies that allow you to be a peer supporter. Mm, right? mm-hmm. And so, uh, and also, now if we had three months to spend with any human being, we could probably train them to mm. become peer supporters. But we have to think that from a workplace perspective, how long can any workplace allow employees to go get training to support right. other employees? Sure. Right? Sure. So our training is either... Um, six two-hour distance education, you know, sessions Mm -hmm. preceded by some pre-reading or it's three days in class, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And in order for us to succeed, we have to pick people who present to the course with the baseline competencies we need because right. we can't train those competencies in such a short mm-hmm. amount of time, right? To what degree
0: mm-hmm. does should a peer supporter already have their shit together before they start oh, trying they to their help shit others? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And
1: that's quite apparent through our selection process. It's mm-hmm. quite apparent if somebody's not well enough, right? right? Uh, and, and we'll actually have a discussion afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've never shied away as a, and by the way, you know, for all our clients, and I was asked that question yesterday, for all our clients, they say, well, what about the people you don't pick? Mm. Who tells them? We do. My company tells them. So we mm-hmm. don't create conflict within the workplace. It's, right. the, it's the outsourced consultants who tell the people, right. you know, Mark, we didn't, we didn't retain your name on this go, right? Mm. But when we detect they're not well, we have that conversation with them. Mm-hmm. an honest granular authentic conversation mm. and say Mar- mark listen you know you're a good guy thank you for applying we're a little concerned though that you may not be ready to do this at this time you know mm-hmm. so i don't want to offend you sure. right and if we offend somebody we would rather be honest yeah. and polite and diplomatic than skirt around with what's it what's the risk
0: of sending somebody in to help others who themselves need a lot of help
1: like well, if, they, if, well, they're, well, if they're very unwell, I mean. So we've never done that. No, of course. I mean yeah, you would, So would I be, don't know what the risks right. are. But of course, you know, if you ask more qualified people than us. Uh, so, yeah, I've never done that. Yeah. Yeah. So we've never done it. I've been at this 20 years and we've always managed to not subject somebody yeah. who's not well enough to this function be it as a full-time employee doing it right. or as a part-timer.
0: I hear from people all the time just because of the amount of public work that I've done that <laughs> and it worked for me to an extent getting into advocacy was has been key to my own recovery yeah. you know it's been part of giving back but That's always one of the first things I tell people, too. You know, they see some of the work that I've done, they want to do some of that work, too, but they haven't even disclosed yet to anybody uh, that they're struggling and that they need help. First things first. And that's exactly what I say. Not everybody's always so happy with that response, (laughs) but uh, I think it's key because there's a risk in my mind of if you're standing up in front of an audience and you're dumping all your stuff out on the audience, then you're doing it for you and you're not doing it for so, the benefit of the audience, right? right? In psychology, they call it the safe and effective use of self, w- knowing why you're telling your story for yeah. you or for somebody yeah. else. Yeah. Um, there is. You mentioned the Mental Health Commission of Canada, too. I was on their board of directors for six years, and during that time... They were running, I think they're still running, the Opening Minds um, Research Project or set of research. Uh, and they found similar results that when you put somebody who's extremely ill and yeah. especially. They call if it contact-based. Um, yeah, contact-based education. education. But if the person is very symptomatic, then it can actually have the opposite effect. It can embed
1: stigma further. right? Yeah. And I sometimes wonder, Mark, hmm. I mean, is that so hard to comprehend, it isn't, right? We don't need research to figure that out, right? And I'm not trying to be a smartass. No, but it's true. But sometimes we come come out with these research findings, and we think it's groundbreaking. I'm thinking, Jesus, it's a bit like suicide, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, what are the causes? What causes people to kill? Access to lethal means, oh, really? You know, I mean, the best minds in the world got together in Halifax about, what, 12 years ago? Big international suicide conference. Uh, impulsivity, presence of a mental health uh, problem, mm-hmm. access to lethal means, and a triggering event. And I'm thinking, that's the conclusion of a four day form on suicide. Right. I mean, access Anybody to lethal means. Anybody who's been yeah. suicidal knows that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, wow. So, no. But of course, let's continue to do research. Sure, but course. sometimes I think we spend a disproportionate amount of money researching and thinking, why? Because it's safe. Right. It's, 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 people are, organizations are risk adverse. So they would rather do strategies and research than mm-hmm. actually implement something. Right? Do something for their people. Right. So, uh, but I'm going a rant now. You got me going. <laughs> That's good. <Yeah. laughs> we need more people to rant about these important issues.
0: Um, so what was it like for um, w- when you started to do this kind of work uh, in the last 10 years of your career within the Canadian Forces, uh, for, other, for your colleagues, for, for um, other people who were either coming up or working, had experienced operational stress injuries, did they start coming to you more? Did it start to change the conversation?
1: Well, the work I did, first of all, was, you know, had an idea of creating a peer support program. Right. Right. Check. Right. Um, And was that, actually, I should say, before we
0: even get there, was that happening informally anyway between comrades? Yes, it's
1: funny you ask that because one of the uh, uh, precipitating moments for the three-star general who says exactly that. Mm -hmm. So he says, isn't that happening already, camaraderie and esprit Mm -hmm. de corps and all this? I said, yes, sir. Bagotville, last week, soldiers got together in somebody's basement and they were playing poker. And they ran out of cash or they started playing poker with their pills. <laughs> some guy went home with the wrong meds and some didn't have an overdose but had a mm-hmm. file written and ended up in the emergency. I said, sometimes sir we need to bring a bit of leadership to something that's natural mm-hmm. without co-opting it, without destroying the organic elements mm-hmm. that are in the relationship between peers. Right if there had been a bit of structure and a bit and some person in charge of that group would said okay you came in with pink pills there you mm-hmm. live with the pink pills buddy right peer support left to its own with 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 no guidelines no rules no structure no accountability sometimes it's not useful right. and i've seen multiple examples of that right so bringing the structure to this again without destroying the organic connection mm-hmm. Right, because peer support will happen on a parks bench. It'll happen mm. at a Tim Hortons. It'll happen on the curb. I remember sitting, as a colonel, sitting in a pair of jeans and a T-shirt with a warrant officer on the curb in the parking lot of our building because you couldn't come in the building, right? Mm. Uh, and I remember flying to Quebec City when I was in uniform at the time in a pair of jeans because I was landing in Quebec City going straight to a peer support group. And an admiral saw me at the airport and said, how come you're not in uniform? Are you flying on duty? I said, yes, sir. And he didn't freaking get it. I'm not going to show up with 27 angry veterans... in a frickin' colonel's uniform, right? right. So,
0: so I take it then, I, was, I guess it's a misnomer now, but I was gonna ask you, you noticed a difference between how people interacted with you as Stéphane Grenier the colonel yeah. versus uh, well, the guy of in course,
1: the of course. Yeah. Right? And it's not that I, wanna, I want it to hide that, but sure. don't rub it in everybody's face right. that you have all this power or not all this power, a colonel's not that powerful, but you know what I mean, <laughs> for a private or a sure. colonel. Co- yeah. yeah. So I think that's what's happening in society too. Looping back to Chris Corrigan, mm. that conversation was instrumental. Today, Mark, uh, MHI has developed uh, workshops for managers. This is your company, Mental My, Health Yeah, mental, yeah sorry. It, it's, it's not an ad, but it's very relevant. Yeah. Leslie Bennett today and, and, and uh, Christine are in uh, Western Canada mm-hmm. delivering management training. You're going to say, oh, another management course, consultancy doing training for managers. What we do in our training is we allow for the Chris Corrigan moment to occur. We mm-hmm. teach managers how it's okay for them to be human mm-hmm. without crossing the boundary, doing or saying anything that will increase the liability on the company mm-hmm. or allowing the employee to forget they're the boss. Right. It's a very delicate tightrope to walk. I know I've been a boss my whole life. Mm-hmm. I've been a boss my entire life after you know my military training was done. But it's very possible. We are teaching people how to walk that tightrope. And when they do, that human connection occurs. Mm-hmm. Employees feel like, their boss really cares because we've taught them that it's okay to care mm-hmm. a boss can care and be a good boss too right, right? and they it's don't just have they to, forgot
0: how one of their <clears throat> big fears i hear from managers all the time is that they don't want to be their anybody's therapist right they exactly wanna, they want to keep yeah. this brick wall between work and life and that yeah. everybody should
1: leave all the problems at home so that phenomena right. is happening again today, right. right? Part of a workshop with a manager, I know what's going to happen at the end of the day. Managers mm-hmm. are going to say, we've never, ever experienced this before because that's what managers tell us all the time. Right. Why? Because nobody has the guts to actually talk to managers this way. Mm-hmm. We don't talk to managers like they're kids. We don't say, you don't have the tools, we'll give you the tools. No, you have the tools. Mm. They're Just don't buried. know how to, maybe how to use so them. They're so buried. Yeah. You, know? you yeah. were capable of doing that as a sister, as a brother, as a neighbor. Right. But somehow you think that when you come into work, all of that you know, authenticity, all, all of that empathy, all of that narrative that you'll deploy for countless people, well, I can't do that with my employees. And we say, of course you can. Mm-hmm. The how is important. Right. We teach the how. And that to me loops back to creating that condition for people to say, wow, I'm valued. I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna get better because I wanna work for Mark. I wanna succeed for him and I wanna show him that he caring for me is not a waste of his time, right? Yeah. And when you create that bond in the workplace, it's transformational. Now, yeah. this is not all kumbaya talk, right. it works. Sure, it well, really so that's works. it. So what are the
0: outcomes that you've been seeing with the clients that you've worked with? Uh, all over the world, it sounds like.
1: Well, listen, all over the world, no. Uh, no. Like I, I do I do keynotes, right? Uh, uh, not around the world, but in North America, sure. in the US, a uh, few. But, um, you know, this is a really slow burn. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're a small company. We're a small consultancy. Uh, we have excellent people hard for me to find good people not because good people are hard to find but good people with lived experience and all of the skills we need Mm -hmm. and the philosophy and the values that align to our company uh, and that allow somebody to stand up in front of managers and Mm -hmm. talk to them that way you need you need to be solid right because this is a narrative that has never occurred before i've been in countless panels mark as you i'm sure Mm -hmm. where you know, a panel discussion in front of senior leaders in an organization and you're brought in as an expert and the beside you is a, a labor lawyer, a dispute resolution person, a union person, and then there's you, right? Mm. And executives are saying, well, I'll give you an example of this situation, right? Well, everybody's got a canned answer mm. except me.
0: Mm.
1: I don't have a canned answer, right? Because to me, it, the, 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 the dispute resolution process, uh, absolutely, there's a process for everything is procedural. Everything mm-hmm. is a 1-800 number, mm-hmm. uh, a pamphlet, uh, a bracelet, right? a referral, call the EAP, or a procedure in a manual. Right. What we teach managers to do is follow their instincts, connect with the people, and actually lead. Mm-hmm. There's no manual for leadership, right? right? There is a manual, you can, you can learn things, right? But when you're in the face of adversity and you're the leader, often you're in a situation that you have to lead And that's what managers and leaders are missing now, is this ability to actually follow their instincts, because we're policy-driven, process-driven, we want to mitigate risks and liabilities, which I do too. I run a company. I have sure. a bunch of employees in Atlantic Canada. I have employees in Cape Breton, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> working in the psych ward, So right?
0: my, yeah. my uh, listeners, regular listeners, know I'm a proud Cape breton no, right. Jim, Jimmy Rankin on the show last week. Is that right? Yeah,
1: yeah. There you go. So, you know, I know that as a a, le- a business leader with employees that, hey, listen, I got to make it. But you know what? I never shy away from having an honest discussion with my employee and connecting with them. Mm-hmm. We, we, we let people go sometimes, mm-hmm. you know. We recently let an employee go, uh, you know, and uh, the employee said, yeah, but I love you guys, mm. you know. Now, I'm not saying this again to be all teary-eyed and all this, sure. but we did everything we could to support that employee. At the end, we had to let him go. That's the response we got. Mm. Why? Because he knew that we connected We supported. We tried and tried and tried. At the end, it didn't work. And for the listeners that are managers, that are business leaders, you need to go to bed at night knowing that you've done everything possible to support your people. Mm -hmm. And when the outcome isn't what you imagine it would be and you have to let somebody go or or whatnot, Mm -hmm. that's not the goal, but it will happen from time to time. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean it's a failure. Mm -hmm. It means that It wasn't meant to be, right? Mm -hmm. So what I don't like about some of the narration and the narrative and the curriculum that we impose on businesses today, which we don't do, is if you do this, it's gonna be fine, Mm -hmm. right? Bullshit, (laughs) (laughs) life doesn't work that way. No, it does not. (laughs) And and the managers who are experienced managers will call you on it or they'll cross their arms and say, you don't know what you're talking about, right? Right. So at the end of the day, uh, you know, to me, it's all about creating that connection.
0: So, uh, since we're we're um, releasing releasing this episode rather on uh, Remembrance Day, can we go back to a, just a little mm-hmm. bit about the uh, about the military community uh, for a second? Um, it tends to have a very high rate of suicide, especially among veterans, and it's always difficult to get accurate data. You know, people people hold these numbers close to their chest, but that's been, that's been tough, it seems, and it makes headlines all the time to try to crack that as well. Um, why are people feeling so isolated? Why do they have such high rates of addiction, for example, mm. and alcoholism? And why are they killing themselves so often? So how can we, um, to any veterans or active service members who are, who are listening to this right now, how can we address this issue of suicide among, um, among military and, and veterans?
1: Well, my answer applies to society as a, as a whole, uh, Isolation kills, right? Um, in 2017, I wrote a thought leadership article uh, around the issue of suicide. And when you do the math, Mark, the very conservative numbers around suicide are that if you do the math, you can fill up 18 737 airline passenger jets from WestJet or Canada. Imagine if 18 of those planes crashed Every year that's the, mm-hmm. that's that's a comparable right mm-hmm. and in 2017. I asked the question How long would it take if that occurred if that started occurring at a rate of one or two a month right mm-hmm. Or 1.5 a month, right? How long would it take for the government to react or the airline industry or, or Transport Canada to react right and in 2017 it didn't have an answer to that mm. We now know two crashes mm-hmm. Right remember when the two 737 mm-hmm. crash bam fleet was recalled all the planes were grounded all over the news right uh, I get it right suicide is is, is a long thing it's a, it's a long burn you know, there's no critical you know there's no mass casualty ever right but if you compare so <clears throat> the number one thing first of all not talking about this issue is not working mm-hmm. right so clearly uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so when it comes to the military institution <clears throat> when I was in the military and to this date there is a virulent, and I think it's the same thing uh, from any politician, leader, clinician. Because there's no answer for the problem, mm. we're just going to deny the problem. Right. <clears throat> right? right. There's a no, So nobody's ever denied that people take their own lives. Mm. But there's a systemic strategic denial to acknowledge that this is something we need to fix. And is the government and the military <clears throat> doing enough to fix it? Well, I will be uh very critical to say, well, of course not mm. you know, uh, no, uh, I don't exactly know what everything needs, you know I don't have the solution. I'm no sure. smarter than the next guy. But the fact of the matter is until you acknowledge that we're not doing enough, not just say it at a press conference mm. and actually uh, not do research, we have enough research, mm. right? Mm. We need to start implementing things now, you know, a few years ago, I was speaking to an epidemiologist. I never clarified or even validated this. But I was told from a reputable source that, you know what? We're investing more and more and more money in suicide prevention training and all this. But suicide rates are not going down. Right. Not just in the military, in society as well, right? So, so what does that mean? That doesn't mean we should stop because I think being aware and understanding all this is important. The hotlines are important. The warm lines are important. All of this. But there's something missing and until we truly acknowledge the fact that okay this is a problem Mm -hmm. but nobody wants to admit it's a problem Mm. why because we think we'll be held liable and the military is a microcosm of of canadian society sure nobody's ever said enough right Mm. i mean some people but people in power rarely say enough we need to nip this in the bud Uh, because we don't really know what needs to happen Mm. uh and even if that occurs, my fear is is that we'll just do more research as opposed to try to really examine why people die by suicide. Mm-hmm. What you don't know is since I've left the military, I've tried four times to, to, to launch a research initiative with various academic institutions, and it never got off its feet. Mm-hmm. And the research was, so if there's any listeners out there that are interested, we need to talk to people like me who have four suicide attempts, who actually tasted the barrel of a gun, who came close to pulling the trigger, and carefully, adroitly bringing them back to that moment to say, what did we do wrong? Mm-hmm. What was missing? What do you, we need to do this safely, right? Of course, we don't want to trigger people and they go home at night and kill themselves. But any organization who has failed a client will want to know why the client left. Right. The mental health system doesn't do that. Right. When our people leave or threaten to leave, we don't want to find out where we went wrong because we're extremely righteous. Mm-hmm. We don't want to admit that we may not be doing enough. Or even worse, that we, we made a mistake. Exactly. Or that maybe the patient may have a few insights that can help the system improve. Now, I know all of the mental health organizations out there, you know, they want little feedback and all this sure, stuff. Sure. But have we truly... Dug deep into have we truly tried to peer into the minds of people like me and countless others, you know, and really try to understand where we went wrong and then do something about it, right? Mm -hmm. Not just publish a paper. So, um, I mean, it's all talk, right? Uh, but four attempts, right? Mm. We come close, Mm. but I haven't found. Through you know bouncing between academic institutions, the yeah. researchers, the researchers who will say, you know what, let's do this. They all think it's a great idea, right? right. But at the eleventh hour, yeah. you pull away.
0: Pull right? away. It's scary. Yeah. Now it I is know. Scary, right? I know there's going to be there's going to be lots of non-military members listening to this too. But I, I'm I'm thinking in particular uh, of veterans and, and service members who are listening to you and really get what you're talking about at yeah. a at a level that I never could, having never served. Um, what would you tell uh, service members uh, who are, you know, on that proverbial trip back from Rwanda as you were, who are starting to decompensate, who are starting to see to come down from that 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 act of duty in their mind? What would you tell them as things are starting to fall apart?
1: Well, I wouldn't tell them anything different again than anyone else. But to them, I would definitely say, you know, prove them wrong. Prove them wrong. Who am I talking to when I say them? Um, you know, people are inherently resilient. People are inherently strong, um, uh, and recovery is a tough journey, right? From from these um, from these problems, and often we tend to fall into patterns that are disruptive, that make people uncomfortable, right? Um, and I would say, hey, listen, I'm, ne- I'm never gonna judge somebody for being ill, right? In fact, I was on the phone with somebody who was admitted to hospital on, on the way here today. Who he was admitted to hospital this summer and during his episode at the hospital, he had access to his phone, he was texting me all the time and he, you know, all these things and it was, it was not, coherent, right? Mm. We talked today. He's out of the hospital. And he was apologizing. He said, don't apologize. <laughs> you weren't well, buddy. You know, if somebody's got a broken leg and they're limping, right, mm. you, they don't need to apologize He's for so limping. Sorry. <laughs> I have a broken leg. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I'm so sorry. I have a broken leg. I can't carry your <laughs> grocery, right? <laughs> so essentially, I think that, you know, to those people who are struggling, um, surround yourselves with people who have the ability to understand what you're going through and not accept the behaviors that are too disruptive. In other words, honest people with a bit of integrity will say, Mark, I understand, you're, you're manic right now. I understand, what you're, but you're gonna have to stop because this is making, you, can't, you can't do this anymore, right? We have to stop walking on eggshells. It's hard to create a network of people who understand, uh, but who don't accept, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is why we're so adamant to say that that's exactly what peer support does. It surrounds people who are unwell with people who will call them out mm-hmm. appropriately right. when they need to be called Compassionately. out. Compassionately. Yeah. With empathy. Right. And it works, right? But support them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've forgotten how to do that in society, Right. And so for those who are isolated today, I say, you know, good luck, but prove them wrong. Moderate your behaviors. Self-reflect on how you're living through your recovery. Be honest with yourself. And if you've done things you're not proud of, acknowledge them and try to not repeat them because that's part of recovery. I know for myself that when I start decompensating, as it happens to me, it might happen to you too, sure, right? Yeah. I know that I have a tendency to get into certain patterns of behavior, certain ways of thinking, and I must police myself if it's 11 o'clock at night or on a Saturday morning, right? And so, but that needs a lot of work, some self-reflection, of course, some therapy, medication, whatever you're doing, right? But when you're alone with yourself, be honest with yourself, call yourself out, right? And and. And surround, seek out people who have enough guts to call you out on your bullshit, right? It's not bullshit, mm-hmm. but, but we need that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't need um, pampering. Uh, people in recovery don't need a pity party, I mm-hmm. think. That's my perspective. And it's not because I'm from the military. I don't think that's what they want. I don't think that's what they need. And unbeknownst to itself, that's what society thinks. Oh, Mark, I'm so sorry. You have depression. No, that's not what we want, right? I don't know what you no, want. No, I've never. But that's never some- made me feel good. I, yeah. yeah, I want somebody to say, Steph, listen, you're spinning now, right? <clears throat> listen, I think we should stop the meeting. Steph needs a break, right? Hey, but I also need to park my ego, right? Mm-hmm. I need. To- so it's a tough journey, right? Um, and I would say, try not to do this alone. You don't need to do this alone, right? Now, if I had it my way, there'd be a lot more peer supporters out there. Right, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. That's not much advice, Mark. But no, uh, I think that's that's really you know. helpful. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, Stephane Grenier, the uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stephane Grenier, I want to thank you so much. I'm so grateful uh, and honored that you joined me on the show today. I've wanted to talk to you for a very long time, uh, and I know that your words, as they have for for the 30 years that you've been a, 30 plus years uh, now that you've been a leader, uh, uh, and for many years in the future, uh, will change people's lives. So thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for, for having me.
1: Right on. Good luck. Thank you.
0: All right, that's my conversation with retired Lieutenant Colonel Stéphane Grenier. His book, After the War, Surviving PTSD and Changing Mental Health Culture, is out now everywhere. I'd really recommend that you go uh, pick up a copy and give it a read. Stefan, is, you heard in our conversation, he's such an engaging person. He's such a, a compelling speaker as well. I've had the great opportunity to hear him speak live. And he, he mentioned in our conversation about uh, serving in Rwanda with with uh, General Romeo Dallaire. And his, and his stories about that are just extraordinary. So I'm so grateful uh, to him for sharing, of course, but also the work that he's doing now in terms of raising awareness in workplaces, especially. Uh, he's, he's been a leader in, as you heard, uh, peer support. And that's such an inspiring and helpful and necessary aspect uh, of the mental health care system. So go check out uh, the work that he's done and the work that he, he continues to do uh, while you're, you're on the internet, checking out Stefan Grenier, uh, and and all of his, his wonderful work. Why don't you head over to Apple podcasts, subscribe to our show, leave us a rating, uh, leave a little comment all the way down there at the bottom. Let us know what you thought about this episode and all the others. We're available on Apple podcasts on Google podcast. Uh, we're on Spotify, Stitcher, CastBox, We these even get posted to YouTube. So wherever you heard this, uh, share it, share it with your friends, uh, who you think might benefit from it. Leave us some comments. That stuff really does matter. And, and I do read them, and I even reply to most of them as well. So uh, thank you so much for, for continuing uh, to support the show. Uh, what else do I got to tell you here? I want to thank the whole team here at Entertainment One, uh, Adrian, Kimberly, and and the team is always growing here. So everybody who, uh, who has been working on these episodes with me uh, and my wonderful editor, as always, who assembles the episodes, Dave, uh, for making all this possible. I think that's it for now. Uh, if you want to find me, I'm on social media everywhere, at Mark Hennick on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, pretty much everywhere else. So head over to any of those and get in touch with me. Uh, markhenick.com as well if you want to send me an email through that. Uh, until next time, I'm Mark Henick and this has been So-Called Normal.